what's really going on in Chinese factories? Going undercover might be the only way to find out. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain podcast. Stories keep on coming. We hear about terrible working conditions in overseas factories, especially in China. Employees there are subjected to long hours, low pay, cramped accommodations, and a hazardous work environment. Manufacturers and retailers have pledged to put a stop to those practices, but they keep happening. Many of the violations have been disclosed by China Labor Watch an activist organization that sends auditors into factories on an undercover basis in order to monitor labor practices. My guest today, Kevin Slayton, is program coordinator with China Labor Watch. He talks about how the organization functions and what it has learned about the way that offshore factories really work. He also challenges some popular assumptions about the rise of China's middle class, a trend that is supposed to be accompanied by higher wages and better working conditions. Now, as a side note, you're going to hear Kevin talk about an incident involving the auditing firm Intertech, which was sued by China Labor Watch for disclosing the identity of an undercover informant. Intertech did not respond to requests for comment. So here is my conversation with Kevin Slayton. Kevin Slayton, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Tell me about China Labor Watch. When was it formed and by whom? Uh, China Labor Watch was established in 2000 by uh, Li Qiang. He's a uh, labor activist um, from China. And uh, China Labor Watch uh, is established in New York City. To this day, it's still still, uh, headquartered in New York City. Mm -hmm. What kind of a staff do you have? Um, we have a, a, a few uh, people. The, the office in New York is actually pretty small because most of our work is in China. So we have we just have a few people in our New York office, and then in uh, China we also have a, a small office in um, Shenzhen. Mm-hmm. So, but most of our but most of our work is done in China, as you, as you would imagine. So uh, that's where most of our effort is focused. But the inspectors are actual employees of the organization. Uh, they're they're contractors, uh, most of them. Mm-hmm. Or, or cooperative. And I, I know you, you try to cooperate with the media and with labor organizations, but is that sort of after the fact, or are they part of the, the group and part of your efforts uh, in the actual inspection uh, stage of your work? Um, I mean, the, they wouldn't technically be a part of the China Labor Watch umbrella or anything, or or, um, or not even necessarily in any sort of cooperative program, but we have a lot of good relationships with media. So, uh, and, and from a media perspective, a lot of these stories are original uh, reports. Um, so, for them, this is you know this is original news, and that's what they like. So, um, you know, it's mutually beneficial, and it also helps us get the word out on these on these uh, 
violations that we find in supply chains. Mm -hmm. Do you have any ties, whether economic or in terms of personal resources, with business, or are you independent from any actual manufacturers or businesses? Um, we've cooperated with some companies uh, before to, to do uh, uh, like improvement projects in their factories. Mm -hmm. But cooperated means it's still there's still kind of an arm's length type of relationship there. Um, yeah, I mean, we we can never be obviously we never be uh, a part of a company or anything like that. But uh, there's um, yeah, I mean, that there's a, a certain amount of funding that has is involved in projects like that. So, uh, but it, but we would never you know depend on companies for our for our organization to continue. You've been around for 13 years now. Uh, do you feel that you've been effective in that time? Um, yes. Uh, Especially with the with the size of the organization and and the limited resources that China Labor Watch has, uh, there's been a lot of improvement that's come about because of the work that China Labor Watch has done. Um, even most recently, uh, in a very short span of time, um, we did a report on Samsung, for example, last year, and uh, on eight Samsung or factories that uh, produce for Samsung, including a few um, directly owned Samsung factories. And uh, Samsung responded by doing audits of most of their 250 factories in China um, and making um, real improvements in some of those. Uh, and, you know, with, with an organization that has less than 10 people worldwide, uh, that's, they're technically full, you know, full-time employees. That's, that's, a lot of, uh, that's a lot of impact with very few resources. Where have you focused your efforts in the first decade of your existence in terms of industries? Um, I, in the beginning, uh, there was a lot of focus on textiles um, and toys, uh, you know, investigations on Disney and uh, Nike and Puma. <clears throat> and then as time went on, the electronics industry um, really exploded in terms of their uh, the amount of production they were, uh, the amount of products they were supplying from China. So we, we started to shift a little bit, um, but we still do the toy industry, uh, we know we did a Mattel report last year, and we're going to be doing another one in the future, um, uh, and sometimes textiles. But now it's, uh, electronics is a big part of what we focus on because we think it's a, it's a very um, high-pace, high high-stress uh, and uh, industry and has a lot of violations. Yeah. How does it work? Do you just one day show up at a factory and demand access, or have you arranged in advance to be let in? Uh, are there any problems with your gaining access to factories? Um, neither of those, actually. Uh, I mean, th there are problems, but it's it's no it's, there's no sort of planning involved um, from the factory perspective. We our investigators enter uh, undercover. They basically um, are hired by the factory like any other worker, and they go in and and work in the factory. And just uh, they're different from other workers only in that they um, observe more closely what's going on, and they might have more knowledge on legal rights of workers, and they record things and you know, sometimes take pictures or video. Um, so, uh, yeah, they're, they're fully uh, undercover during these investigations. And then we also have work after the undercover investigation, we'll have another investigator do a, um, an interview uh, or interviews, I'm sorry, outside of the factory to sort of confirm some of the information and verify what the undercover investigator has found. How long are your undercover uh, investigators on the scene before you feel you have enough evidence to issue a report? 
it can be as short as about a week to as long as you know months. Uh, it really depends on the factory and how much information we need or how big, how large it is. Um, so it can vary, but uh, usually about a week is the minimal time they need to really get a good idea of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Have you ever faced any legal repercussions from the companies that you investigated? Um, we've had a lot of communication with companies, but I don't think, in my in my knowledge, in my knowledge of uh, unless something's happened in the, in the in the very beginning that I didn't know about, I don't think there's been lawsuits. Um, but I, I could be incorrect on that. Uh, but in the recent in recent past, there hasn't been any lawsuits I know uh, from companies. Uh, we did file a lawsuit ourselves against a auditing company uh, for releasing the identity of one of our workers when we had a contract um, with them not to release the identity of the worker. And one of your why would one of your auditing companies do that? I'm, I'm not a worker. I'm sorry, an investigator. Um, no. Yeah, uh, well, we, we were cooperating with a auditing company, Intertech, which is a real big auditing company, um, because we had found bribery among Intertech auditors. And uh, we told Intertech, and they said, okay, so uh, we're going to work with you to look at a particular factory, and if you find, um, if you find any uh, auditing bribery, uh, could you please, uh, you know, have the investigator tell us, and, and you will take, and you will know, we'll improve the situation. So we had we signed a contract with them. We had the investigator. Um, uh, one of the the, the uh, conditions of the contract was that they could not uh, identify the investigator to anybody else, to any third party. And after the investigator found uh, bribery, uh, audit or Intertech published a report with the auditor's name in it, identifying information, um, and this really ruined uh, the investigator's life. Um, he he had to move out of the the region and and basically, you know, get out of that area because he was being sought out by companies and the government. Hmm. So not only do you face the problems that happen within the factories, but there's a certain level of corruption within the auditing process too. Yeah, yeah. Auditing, uh, at least in China, is a has a lot of obstacles to it. Uh, social auditing. Um, one is just you know straight up bribery. Another is just the nature of auditing itself. It's a it's a temporal thing you know you come in for a day or two and you're only seeing a snapshot of the factory uh the factory often knows about these um and even if they're surprise audits so-called surprise audits there's things the factory can do to adapt very quickly um but they're known you know un that's why we do uncover undercover investigations because they're unknown and things are as they usually are in the factory um but with audits there's a lot of limitations Mm -hmm. Do you find that to be a pervasive problem, or is it only on selected occasions that you have problems with the auditors? It's pervasive. Uh, I mean, the, the bribery is obviously not every single time an auditor comes along. There's bribery. Uh, but these other problems that I described, uh, the, the problem with factories sort of faking things, you know, it's like auditing fraud, is, are very common. Um, we've, we've run across countless times of factories, including one of the Samsung factories we investigated, where they keep um, uh, separate records. They keep a record for the government of of hourly uh, of working hours, a record, uh, the real record, uh, the actual number of hours workers work, and then a record for auditors. Um, and so they have these separate systems to in order to pass audits because uh, you know according to different companies' codes of conduct or brands' codes of conduct, as well as the government, there's a certain amount of hours that workers can work, and they, and they can't go above that level. Um, and the auditors will provide these, uh, these, these fraudulent working records in order to pass the audits. 
You talked about Sansom. You said that they took action pretty quickly after your investigation. Have you generally found businesses to be cooperative once you have uh, revealed aspects of their operations that you feel are in violation of, of working conditions? It really depends. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it depends on the, the culture of the company, that particular, you know, the, the CSR department we're working with or social responsibility department we're working with, um, the particular problems we find. I can give you another example, an opposite example. So in that particular case, Samsung was responsive. Um, uh, but Mattel, which I mentioned we are investigating and were investigated last year, um, has been very uh, reticent to, to do anything about these problems for years. They were one of the first companies, you may know that they were one of the first companies to create a code of conduct um, in the toy industry, and that was uh, almost 16 years ago, in 1997, I believe. And ever since then, um, violations in their supply chain are actually, have actually gotten worse um, based on their own auditing as well as our investigations. Uh, and this, this company, Mattel, is just not, they, they only will respond with denial. They won't respond with a lot of transparency or more transparency. Um, or a lot of action. So the, there's real, it's really hit and miss about what a company is going to do, and it's hard to explain why companies vary. Even within the same industry, companies will vary. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Apple has been more responsive than Samsung, but Apple also has you know their own problems. But they're more responsive than Samsung in our experience. So sometimes the uh, code of conduct uh, promulgated by these companies is for real, and sometimes it's just window dressing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 we think that in um, in too many cases, it's, it's always window dressing, and the company uh, really doesn't want to take responsibility for what it's promised. And um, there's actually a lawsuit in Paris right now, um, or it's, I guess it's a complaint. Uh, I don't know the way the legal system works very well in Paris, but it's, um, it's a complaint that's been filed with a prosecutor, and they're investigating right now against Samsung uh, for false advertising. And it's an interesting lawsuit because it's uh, – that false advertising is based on their social commitments, the, the commitments they've made in their code of conduct. Um, because a lot of these companies actually, you can imagine that people might be more willing to buy from a company that has a solid uh, record on um, human rights or, or you know, uh, ethics in their supply chain. And, um, and with so much competition, this might, you know, allow to a company to get a, a larger piece in the market. And so it is a type of advertising. And we really have to hold these companies account to account for, for what they're promising. Yeah. What are some of the worst problem spots right now with regard to either industries or locations within China or even specific companies? Um, I think uh, – there's really, there's really violations across the production, um, the manufacturing industry in China. That's number one. Um, there's variances between different areas, like on the coast, because you have a lot more um, migrant workers that are coming from inland China. Uh, these factories are used to having this high turnover rate because a lot of migrants are coming in and then they're going to go home. And they, they know that there's a constant flow of workers that are, that are going to come into the factory. So they may be less likely to, um, to really uh, put a lot of emphasis on keeping workers uh, and you know, giving them the sort of uh, treatment or the, or the rights protection they need or the, uh, to, to keep them in the factory. In the inland, you might uh, have um, more consideration for, for the workers uh, in some cases, even though wages are lower because the, the uh, 
price of living is lower, you might have more consideration for workers because they're going to be around. That's where they're from. Um, they're, you know, they're, that's their home. Um, so that, that's maybe a, a difference in the way the factories operate. Um, Industry-wise, uh, we know uh, that the just recently the electronics industry has a lot of problems, but the toy industry um, is in many ways much worse. Uh, and it, but it does not get as much attention, and it could be related to the this product phenomena. Uh, you know, products like the iPhone or Samsung's new products. They they all get so much attention from the media that the attention on our reports when we report these violations are in part uh, related with the fact that there's new products coming out all the time. But with toys, not because they're given to children and uh, you know the children aren't the ones writing these, these media reports possibly or because the products are maybe cheaper, um, there just isn't much attention on it. But, but the conditions are worse uh, on average. Conditions in terms of what? Uh, wages, living conditions, uh, hours they have to work, the all difficulty of the, of the work? All of the above. Uh, difficulty of the work, maybe not. Maybe they don't work as fast. The pace in the electronics industry is notorious. Um, it's it's really workers. A lot of times are really treated as robots in the electronics industry um, because they're working with robots and machines a lot, and they're expected to work very quickly. Um, in the toy industry, there can be a quick pace of work, but it's often not as fast as the electronics industry. In in most other ways, though, it is worse. Like you just mentioned, uh, living conditions are often poor. Um, the the wages are lower, the hours are longer. Uh, these sorts of things are are really a problem in in all factories in China, but especially in an industry like the toy industry. Uh, roughly, what percentage of uh, factory situations have the workers living on site in dormitories versus commuting to and from a job, such as we would understand here in the states in a factory environment? That is a, that's a good question. Um, I don't have an official stat on that. I mean, based on our investigations, I would say that a majority of workers, um, you know, over 50% uh, in most big factories will live on campus, on the factory campus. Mm-hmm. And that's still that's still the case even, even going forward. Yes, and, and, and one thing that we talk about, there, there's always this, this problem with relative morality. You know, people will say, well, this is just the way people live in China, so we shouldn't expect them to have uh, you know, this is this is the the, the quality of life in China, and, and most people are used to it. We shouldn't expect people to be able to live, you know, in their own apartment or their own house or what have you. Um, and and so, people will say, uh, a lot of critics will say that uh, that we, these living conditions, uh, you know, where you have ten or eight people or twelve people to a room, are normal in China. Well, you know, maybe there's students are used to living together when they're younger, but when you're getting people who are and they usually live four-door room, by the way. But when you're getting people who are, you know, getting to a point where they want to raise a family, they're in their late 20s or early 30s, and they're still living in a dorm with 12 people, um, and there's no way they can afford on those wages to get their own, even rent their own apartment in that area without uh, working a tremendous amount of overtime. And if they do that, an illegal amount of overtime, I should say, and if they do that, then they, they can't raise a family because they don't have any time to spend with their child. So this leads to a case where a lot of people will have kids. They'll get married and have kids, and then they leave their kids in the rural areas. And that's not a really sustainable way for a society to develop. I think we can all agree, um, more morality, or relative morality aside, I think we can agree that's not really practical. So a lot of these workers have to leave their, their young children to be cared for by the children's grandparents. 
mm-hmm. while they go to the city and work all year long. Well, doesn't China also or hasn't China restricted the ability of uh, of workers to bring their families into some of the more crowded industrial zones? There is a policy issue here that, that needs to be accounted for um, uh, in if you bring your children, if you have a, a registration, it's called a huko in China. If you have a registration from the um, rural areas and you bring and your children have that registration, then they have to pay an extra fee to go to school, and that's hard on the families. Um, but even if you didn't have that fee, really, it's it, people, the workers don't make enough money. Um, even two, uh, a husband and wife who are both working at, at a factory don't don't make enough money. To, to be able to live uh, any sort of life in the city. They, they don't have any money left. They won't have any savings. I mean, they weren't really preparing for a retirement. Um, their parents often, because of an incomplete retirement system, their parents often don't have any money uh, in retirement, and so they need to send, they need to remit some money home as well. Um, there's just too many costs associated with living in the city on, on a minimum wage. Um, and this is a policy issue to some degree. And and we don't let the well, in our reports and our uh, articles we don't let the Chinese government off on this. We do criticize them, mm-hmm. um, but it's but you can't just give all responsibility to the government either. Um, because there is a lot of holes in the government's uh, implementation of policy in China, but that doesn't justify a company, uh, either a local company or a foreign company, taking advantage of those. And I think we can agree with that. Yeah. We know for a fact that wages are rising in certain factories in China, and that in some cases there's even a labor shortage. As I understand it, they're finding it more difficult to find workers willing to do this type of work now that their options are greater and their income is greater, and there's even some disposable income and the beginnings of kind of a nascent middle class in China. Are things getting better in the factories as you've experienced it? There is a lot of stories coming out um, that sort of... uh, have this uh, argument that there's a middle class, a nascent middle class, and, it, and it's related to these wages rising in factories. Um, there's a, but these are actually a bunch of points that have been sort of melded together, and they should be separated. The middle class in China is often not made up of workers. It's almost never made up of workers. Um, workers, even when they work 100 hours of overtime, are barely, they may not even reach the, the median wage in a city. Um, so that. I think the most workers are excluded from this rising middle class. Uh, the middle class tend to be urbanites. Um, another issue is with uh, uh, the the rising wages themselves of, of workers in the manufacturing industry. You have to put it in the context of rising prices in China, where you have eight percent uh, inflation every year, seven percent inflation. In some local in cities, it's, it can actually be much higher. It can be fifteen, twenty percent. Um, in some in, uh, interior cities in China, um, the, the raises in the, the minimum wage workers is not that significant uh, in comparison to the raises in income of many other people in society or in a particular region. Um, so there has been some uh, raise in wages, but it's not significant enough to really change the social outcome, which is that the workers can't sustain a life in the city where, where they work, um, and they can't bring their family there. And finally, uh, the last point that you made, um, was uh, related to keeping or to finding workers. There's a labor shortage. Um, the labor shortage, we would argue, is actually because the the wages. Uh, there's an expectation that is a rising expectation among younger workers in China, but the um, the wages aren't high enough to meet that expectation. And uh, hopefully, companies will continue to respond by r- raising wages to a living wage. Um, 
but there still are a lot of workers out there that are taking jobs. So it's not it's not like there's a total absence of workers either. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you still feel you have a lot of work to do. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of work to do, and and it's and it's much more than just wages. Uh, there's a lot of um, problems with just the basic dignity of workers in the workplace um, being hit, yelled at, uh, receiving proper safety training. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of laws on safety training in China that are almost never met, um, and it puts workers at risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Kevin Slayton, thank you so much for taking some time to uh, tell us about the work of China Labor Watch and what's going on in uh, China's industrial sector uh, these days. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me on. That was Kevin Slayton of China Labor Watch. Thank you for listening. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch over 1,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. See you next time.